I'm a playwright because I was a theatre director and uh, I had a travelling theatre group and this was the late 1960s and on a Wednesday the writer who was meant to be delivering a play for us to start rehearsing on Monday failed to deliver. So as the director of the group I had to write a play by the following Monday so that we would have something to rehearse. And until that point it had never really occurred to me to write a play. Uh, but I wrote a play, it was absolutely terrible, but I could see at once that I had a gift for dialogue. And the minute I gave it to actors, actors said, oh, I really will enjoy saying this. And I think that's, that's the basic skill. You can get misled by that skill and you can fall in love with that skill. Uh, but if you don't have that skill, you're in for a rough old time. No dialogue, nobody's dialogue is real. There is no such thing as a play in which people speak exactly the way they speak in real life uh, because it would be insufferably tedious to attend such a play. Everybody's dialogue is stylized. Even so-called naturalistic dialogue is in fact intensely stylized. Just as a painting is not a photograph, there is an artist and the artist's hand is over everything that is said and seen. Well I used to be able to write very freely in uh, you know, plainly as I describe writing a play in four days, then I wrote it on my knee in a van. But uh, now I need silence and um, I'm obsessive about it and can't even really write in a house where there's anybody else in the house at all. It's horrible. The best work I've done has been by starting with a very, very strong visual image. I often feel, oh my goodness, I'd love to come into a theatre and see that. If I came into a theatre, you know, plenty begins with a woman um, who's sitting on some packing cases in a house that she's just stripped. And she's got the naked um, body of her husband lying on the floor. And she's rolling a roll-up cigarette and her best friend is coming in with a Chinese takeaway at dawn. Well, who doesn't want to see a play like that? It's just such a delicious situation that I, was, I kind of went, well, this is a play I'd love to see. And often when I go to the theatre, I get that thrill of, oh, this is a, this is a gorgeous place to be. This is, this is a very, very nice feeling that this play is giving off before it's even begun. I mean, the ideal is the play where you don't really have to do any conscious work at all. It's simply given to you. The play South Downs, which um, is about to come on at Chichester, which I've written as a curtain raiser to the Browning version, was simply given to me. Uh, meaning that my subconscious delivered it and I would wake in the night, scribble the next day's work, go back to sleep, know what I was going to write the next day. It just came from nowhere. Every writer will recognize that as the most desirable state of affairs. On other plays, no, you're in total agony. You, do, you haven't got the slightest idea where you're going and you're working for every single line. But the infuriating thing is the ones that are given from God don't necessarily come out any better and the ones that you struggle for don't necessarily come out any worse. I, I'm very um, unconscious of influence. I know the theory that we're all meant to be influenced by other writers, but it seems to me the greater the writer, the less likely you are to be influenced by them. In other words, why would anybody attempt to do what Beckett had done or what Brecht had done? Because Beckett and Brecht had done it perfectly. So it's done. You know, why set, you'd never set a play, you know, underneath a tree with two tramps waiting for somebody to come. What would be the point? A definitive play on that subject already exists. And I think that certain playwrights in my lifetime, um, by being great, 
have also been disastrously influential. And uh, Harold Pinter is the obvious example. You know, when, a, when the curtain goes up and we're in a room and two unnamed characters are vaguely threatening each other with very short rhythmic dialogue, which I'm afraid is a type of play you see more than any other in the British theatre now. You do go, oh, Harold, you know, what is being done in your name? I suppose we feel in fiction veracity when we feel that there's a loose bag of characteristics, some of which are contradictory. I have to keep saying to actors, they keep saying, they, at the beginning when I first started writing, they used to say, oh, but I'm calm in this scene, and then I'm angry in that scene. And they'd say to me, am I a calm character or am I an angry character? And I said, well, haven't you noticed you're a different person when you're talking to your mother than you are when you're talking to your girlfriend? And you're a different person in a shop than you are when you're, um, you know, angry in the bank. And are you not capable of being all these different things? In life, everything doesn't fit. And the example I've used before in Man on Wire, I don't know if you saw that documentary film, it was about a man who crossed on the wire between the Twin Towers. And, uh, you know, it was an incredible operation that he'd planned with his girlfriend for months and months and months and months. And a huge amount of planning went into it. And it was one of the greatest feats of wire walking of all time. And he stayed up there for an hour and a half, which is unbelievable. And what, when he came down, what did he do? He slept with the first woman he met on the street and thereby destroyed the relationship with his girlfriend, which had been running for eight or ten years. Now that is what I call the telling detail that almost no fiction writer could create. If you wrote that, then in that infuriating phrase, nobody would believe you. It's too good to be true. There was a period in which I sort of fell in love with the idea of bringing cinematic techniques to the, to the theatre. If you put characters in a room, then you have to be a very great writer to be able to suggest what's going on outside that room. But obviously, if you write across a canvas of changing locations and changing times and changing places, one of the things you're doing is, is making a claim for history. Now, if you are, as it were, a cosmic pessimist, and you believe that there's such a thing as the human condition, and that all human beings are alike at all times, and that the essential facts are that we're born alone, we briefly meet other people, we die, and that that's all you can say about humanity, then you will look for a form that expresses that. And that will, that, but if, like me, you believe that there's a certain amount of suffering in the world which is unavoidable, and which you may in the horrible cliche called the human condition, but there's a whole lot of other suffering which is avoidable, which actually you could do something about if you organised yourself to do something about it. If you believe that, then you must seek a theatrical form which naturally expresses what it is you want to say. You don't choose to be a political playwright. You simply happen to see the world that way. And you're going to express what it is you feel about the world, which happens often to be expressed through politics. And one of the things that theatre must do is show how people became the people they became and what they might become, what their potential for becoming something different is. Theatre is, as they say, a young people's game. I'm not the first person to use that phrase. And the theatre is that it's always at its most vital when there's a fresh generation coming into the theatre and attempting to sweep away what immediately became before. And um, it is very rare. You know, at the moment in Britain, it happens that you have a historical 
freak, which is that there are a lot of old playwrights. In other words, you know, there are a lot of people like Carol Churchill or Tom Stoppard or Alan Bennett or Michael Frayn or me, and we've all been doing it for 40, over 40 years. Um, it's very unusual that. You know, a life in the theatre is usually very short. And there's an urgency about young theatre that I love, which is usually to do with life. It comes from people seeing young people feeling that the art form doesn't reflect what they know. And so they're coming, running in from the street and they say, we want, to, we want to show you what life is now like. And the first burst when you do that creates the most exciting theatre. John Osborne is the obvious preeminent 20th century example of a man who blows his way into the, into the theatre and says, the plays that are all on are musty and mystical and conservative and boring and they're not about people I know. Now here are the people I know. People now reading Look Back in Anger don't know why it was so revolutionary in its time, but it was revolutionary because those people had never been on the stage before. And so to hear their voices and their feelings was again a kind of poetry. It was poetic and it was like a painter saying, this is what my generation looked like. And so the young always come into the theater saying that and wanting to do that. And it's very exciting when they do. The longest I ever stopped writing plays for was five years, and I, four or five years. And I stopped writing plays because I didn't know what to say. And that was because I was a political writer. And really at the end of the 70s when Margaret Thatcher arrived, and we had all predicted that the world would turn left and the world turned right, um, you know, I was left looking very foolish. And so I didn't have a means of interpreting the world. I didn't have a, I, you know, the first character you have to get right in a play is yourself. Yourself, meaning from what point of view am I writing this play? Who is the person who is writing this play? Of what do they approve or disapprove? Or do they not want to show their approval or disapproval at all? Who is this person writing the play? And so I was so thrown politically by what happened at the end of the 70s that I was incapable of writing about it for some years. Being a playwright is having to express something which you're absolutely burning to express. If you're not burning to express something, don't be a playwright. Don't do it unless you have to do it. Because it isn't, uh, you know, there are, there are writers, believe me, and you may be one of these kind of writers who simply wants to write to entertain and there are wonderful writers in that category who simply, you know, want to make an entertainment of it. Um, and good luck to them. I think they're completely wonderful and I wish there were more of them, you know. Uh, but having said that, for most of us, we're writers um, because we are desperate to achieve the impossible and write a good play about something we care very deeply about. And so, for goodness sake, given the amount of heartache and bruising you're going to take and the sheer level of incomprehension you're going to be met with, uh, don't do it unless you have to do it. Do it because you have to do it. And you at once can spot young playwrights who have to do it and they know they have to do it and they're doing it for all those right reasons. But for God's sake, don't do it for the wrong reasons because it is not, you, you simply won't have a very nice life, I promise you.